Amen. The Apostle Paul uh, once described the, the, the ethos of his ministry and once described, in fact, his entire ministry as the preaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And uh, he was not merely speaking, I'm sure, as, as simply an individual, but as one who was um, given insight into how best to define what the, the purpose of the church's existence is, how best to define the activity of the church. The church might be defined as a place where Jesus Christ, the crucified Lord, is proclaimed and uh, crucified and risen Lord is proclaimed and worshipped. Um, in another place, Paul says that he, um, he, when he's in the church and when he's with God's people, he doesn't want to know anything else apart from Jesus and him crucified. There's no other knowledge that even matters, that even has meaning or makes sense or is relevant if it's not speaking about Jesus and him crucified. In saying that, he was again reminding the church that nothing was as central to our beliefs, central to our existence, central to our ministry as the teaching that Jesus died on the cross. Uh, he was reminding the church that the cross of Jesus Christ is the source of the um, church's strength. It's the church's power. The church is only as powerful as it bears witness to the cross. The church is only as powerful as it sees the cross as it's everything. Uh, the church can always say with Paul, that all that we long to know and delight in and make sense of is Jesus and him crucified. And if you are seeking for more than that, then we cannot, um, we, 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 there's nothing that we have to offer you. If you're seeking for more than that, then the church will not be involved. The church can always trace then its rationale, it's the motivation for everything it does, whether it's teaching, whether it's um, it's, it's serving. Everything the church puts its hand to, it, it has to be able to trace. If it's going to be authentic, it traces back to the centrality of the cross. Everything is built on the foundation of the cross and leads us back to the cross. So the study of the cross of Jesus, marveling at the cross of Jesus, worshiping at the cross of Jesus Christ is the church's life's work, and it will continue right through eternity when the Bible is clear that we will continue to worship the Lamb who was slain. Even in eternity, the death of Jesus Christ is the church's theme. And so, uh, Good Friday can seem a strange day uh, for us because for the church, the, the, the cross is not for a day. It's for a lifetime, it's every day, it's every moment we are basking in the cross. Anyhow, though, we do take advantage of today to perhaps um, take a more uh, precise and particular focus on the message of the cross. And uh, we'll do that this morning on, on what the cross means to the church. And to do so, I've turned your attention to the... To, to, uh, I'll turn your attention to Matthew chapter 27, and um, the, the section that covers some verses 11 through to 44, and so um, that, 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 that reading, I, 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 the reading earlier did, contained significant portions of um, the things that took place before Jesus Christ even arrived 
at, at the cross. And as you read through this, as you read about Jesus Christ being led away uh, from the Garden of Gethsemane and led to, 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 to be tried and to be um, investigated, as you, as you read about Christ before Pilate, as you read about Christ being mocked by the Roman soldiers and, and beaten by the Roman soldiers, as you read about Christ being mocked by the people. Of course, it is a, um, it, it, the story can read in many ways. It can read as, as tragic, merely tragic. It can read as uh, merely a miscarriage of justice. It can read um, as, uh, it can read quite sentimental. Uh, it, it can read quite pitiful. Um, all, all these things might have their, their rightful place but what is a Christian reading of this, right? That's, that's what we are thinking about this morning. The, the, the point is that when the Christian hears the story of the cross, there are certain things that he sees that others may not quite well see. There is a certain glory about it. This glory is unfolded for us through, right through the New Testament. And that's why when you read the epistles and so on, and read a lot of the, the rest of the New Testament, very rarely are we dealing with the actual details of what takes place at the cross. You know, you don't read much about the, um, the physical sufferings of Christ outside of the, the Gospels that, you know, tell the narrative and, 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 and assure us that these, are, this, these things took place and are historical. And I think in many ways, that's, that's one of the main reasons why the Gospels speak about the details so much is to confirm that this is actually, this actually happened. It's not a myth. It's not just an idea. This, this, man, this, 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 this man really was crucified. But, but outside of that, the, 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 the Christian faith has never had a mere obsession with the details, as though um, that was the end in and of itself for those things happening. There's always been a greater realities to what might only um, meet the eye of the one who was reading this without the Christian understanding. Uh, when you read it as a Christian, there's even in a, in a text like Matthew 27, which is not necessarily always fleshing out the details for us, it becomes clear that this is what is in the back of the mind of the gospel writers. This is what they're thinking. This is the significance that they make of some of the major details in the cross of, of Jesus Christ. Um, I was reading earlier in the week a story about a, a lady who um, had a vase, in a, a, a vase in her house, and she kept it somewhere somewhere near the door, and in this vase, she would keep uh, um, umbrellas. She put umbrellas in these vases for quite a long time. Um, someone visited the house one day and said, oh, that vase looks quite, uh, looks quite, it looks quite, you know, pricey, looks a bit expensive. She said, no, I don't think so. I'll just keep my umbrellas in there. Um, and the lady said, oh, you just get it valued, you know, and, and see what, what it's worth, perhaps. So she, she does that. She takes the vase, gets someone who knows what they're doing to come and have a look at this vase. And it turns out, that the vase is worth more than, not just the umbrella she'd been placing it, but the entire house she was living in, right? The vase was w literally worth millions of pounds. That, that's almost something like what it means for the Christian to come to the cross with his, uh, and the details and the narrative of the cross with eyes that have been taught to evaluate what's happening here. We see more than what just meets the eye. Um, it's not just any other story of a man walking up to the cross and dying. Christ was not the only person to be crucified. He wasn't the first, he wasn't the last. Uh, but there's a unique significance to what's happening with Jesus. And um, we spend our whole days basking in that. And so I'm going to draw attention to, to five things this morning that I say we see right through the New Testament uh, are stressed as, uh, as being 
the significance of the cross for, for Christians. Five things that mean that the Christian preaches the cross. Why do we tell people to come and see the cross of Jesus Christ? Why do we proclaim, people, proclaim the cross to others? Because, of, because of, of the way in which the Christian has been taught to evaluate what's happening at Calvary, the things that we see. Um, why is the cross so powerful? Why is it the power of God? Uh, and so even in the raw details and narrative of a book like Matthew 27, uh, with the benefit of the entire New Testament uh, we, 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 and, and God's word, we, we, we learn that far more is going on than might just meet the eye. And the first thing then I'll draw your attention to this morning that the, the rest of the Bible um, fleshes out for us is that the cross of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's sovereign plan. Um, so what happens in Matthew 27, and what you hear about Jesus Christ dying is, is God's uh, fulfilling, is, is, is what fulfills God's plan for the entirety of the universe. This is God's plan for the world. This is what's happening with the world. Um, just last year, we were hit with a strange, uh, strange turn of events in the pandemic, nothing like most of us have ever seen. And people were forced to ask the question, you know, what is this? What's happening to the world? Where's the, what's happening with us? You know, folks asked, was this the end times and all kind of weird things. For the Christian, it was clear to us, though, pandemic or no pandemic, God's plan centers around the cross of Jesus Christ. In Matthew itself, one of the ways that we see that is, is through the fulfillment of prophecy. Over and over again, it is clear that... Um, the, the gospel writers, a book like Matthew, Matthew wants us to see that what's happening here is God is fulfilling his promises. Jesus Christ's death is not by accident. It has been, it had been promised, it had been prophesied. So I read earlier in uh, the book of Isaiah and chapter 53, we read the, uh, the, the words of the, the, the famous words of the, prophet, of, of the prophet Isaiah, speaking about this coming servant of God who would suffer uh, for, for, for the people of God. And Isaiah says uh, in, in verse 7 that uh, he, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to, a lamb to the slaughter and like a sheep before its sharers is silent. He doesn't open his mouth. And we read the words of Isaiah, for example, and we see how really what Matthew is wanting to do for us is show us this is who Isaiah, about seven, eight hundred years ago, this is who he was speaking about. The, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that runs right through the cross, so that over and over again, Matthew is telling us this is a fulfillment of God's word. This is a fulfillment of what God has said in, in, in this, in, in, in all, all these years ago in his holy book. Was, is, is one way by which we, we start to see that in the book of, that, that the cross of Jesus Christ is that which God has prepared from the past. In fact, it goes further than the beginning of human life. The book of First Peter tells us that Jesus Christ uh, was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Right? We see that this is all God's plan. This is not happening by accident. It might seem that way. And when you read it, it might seem like everything is just going from bad to worse. Everything is just, evil is just happening to Jesus Christ. 
Um, he doesn't say anything to defend himself. The uh, Pilate tries as best as he can to, um, to release him, to free him. He does his best to, to convince the people. He, he, he tries to place Jesus Christ alongside another criminal. He says, listen, rather than crucify him, essentially, this guy we know for a fact was a, has been a terrible human being. He's, a, he's guilty. He deserves to be crucified. We know that for a fact. This man is a lot of allegations and accusations that can't be proven. Even still, the people refuse, right? Pilate can do nothing to save Jesus Christ, even though uh, in another gospel, the Bible tells us that Pilate suggests, Pilate says to Jesus Christ, do you know that I, I'm the only one, I have the power to determine whether you live or die? In John chapter 19, I have the, the, the power to determine whether you're crucified or you're set free. Christ said to him, you have no such power. That, that power belongs to God alone. So Jesus Christ is aware of how much this is God's plan. It was it's for the glory of God that Jesus Christ was crucified. Um, it, 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 it is for that. That was what was uppermost in his mind was pleasing the Father, glorifying God. The cross is the best way for Jesus Christ, is the best way that God, for God to tell the whole world about himself, about his plans, about what's going to happen, about your future. The cross of Jesus Christ. Is, in the book of Acts, Peter preaching a, a sermon on the day of Pentecost says, it's according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, God's perfect knowledge. God is eternal, and as, as eternal as his knowledge is, he'd always planned that the, 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 the history will turn on, on what happens at Calvary. Uh, as soon as uh, history was always heading towards Calvary, and that's why in the New Testament, as soon as Calvary comes, after Calvary, as soon as Jesus Christ dies and rises again, dies, dies and rises again, the apostles speak of us being in the end times. Not, it's not when a pandemic hits. It's not a few years down the. It's not some years, a few years down. It's it's right then. So two thousand years ago or so, two thousand plus since Christ was crucified, the, the the Christians were saying we are in the end times. Why? Because the the death of Jesus Christ is the one thing that had to happen before God begins to round up history. And so we come to the cross of Jesus Christ and Christians realize there's nothing that determines, that matters more for my future than what I make of the cross. Nothing is as crucial. That's why Christians preach the cross to their children. That's why we tell our little children to sing, um, to sing um, Jesus loves me, he who died. Morbid as death is, as unwilling as you would be, to introduce the child, your child to concepts of death too early, I'm willing to have him sing about the blood of Jesus. Blood is nasty, mushy stuff, and I wish they didn't have to think of violence, but it's okay to think about the violence of, that was done to the Son of God because nothing else matters like that. Nothing else affects our future like that. When all is said and done, we will be judged by what we've made of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you've done, what you've achieved, or how you failed, how you've planned your life, or how you've failed to plan your life. You will be judged by what you make of Jesus Christ. 
Doesn't matter what judges in this world say about you, whether judges with a legal jurisdiction or just people who judge you by what they say about you. People might judge you as a great person or they might judge you as someone worthy of being canceled. When all is said and done, the voice that matters most is the voice that comes from the cross of Jesus Christ. God will ask us all one question that will define where we spend eternity one day. It's, it's, it's what have you made of the cross of Jesus? Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? There's not a greater question. Did Jesus die for you? Did you trust in the cross? And that's why the New Testament treats the cross the way it does. That's why Paul can say, I don't want to know anything about, apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. It's not because he chooses to have a pointless, insignificant, aimless life. No, it's because he realizes this is the true meaning of life. God was always planning to reveal himself in the cross of his son. Uh, one day, uh, Joseph spoke greater words than he knew when he experienced such great betrayal from his brothers. And he said, uh, after he had been betrayed by his brothers and, and they thought he was going to get revenge in them because God had elevated him again, Joseph said, don't fear. Um, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And that's the same words that then ultimately apply to the cross of Jesus Christ. Even what those men meant for evil, even, even the evil that Pilate commits by not being willing to stand up for justice, the evil that the people commit by yelling for Christ to be crucified, knowing he's done nothing worthy of being crucified, the evil perpetuated by the soldiers who mock him and spit at him, even all those things happen because God is working everything for good, the good of saving sinners. And that's why, in many ways, you, you find that even in this story here, the enemies of God are testifying to the glory of Jesus Christ's cross. Uh, later on, I will stress, I'll, I'll, I'll point you to this again, but later on in four, verses 42 and 43, the people say he couldn't save himself but he could save others. Since he, was, since he could save others, why can't he save himself? And that's the glory of the cross. The glory of the cross is that the one who couldn't save himself chose not to save, who could save himself, sorry, the one who alone could save, the one who could save others, chose not to save himself so that others could be saved. That's the glory of the cross. They don't know. They're doing it inadvertently. They, 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 they think they're mocking him, but God is sovereignly in charge. Same thing happens when they say, oh, he's the king of the Jews. They call him a king. They, they say, let's, let's mock him by giving him a crown, a crown of thorns. They're mocking him, but his crown is a crown of thorns. In fact, in glory, we call him the lamb he was slain. It's a beautiful picture to show him wearing a crown that points to the fact that he's a crucified king. They don't know that, but they're doing the purposes of God. They say, they, say, they, they, they place a label on top of him, calling him the king of the Jews. Absolutely, they think they're mocking him, but they're telling the truth. He is the promised king of the Jews. And he's the king even of the universe. At the cross, Christians are reminded, God is absolutely in control of history. He's in control of good. He's in control of evil. And what you make of the cross determines what side of history you're standing on. What you make of the cross determines uh, where you spend your future. 
That's the first thing then, is the cross of Jesus Christ is where all God's plans are fulfilled. So it doesn't matter what happens in this world, Christians trace it back. We trace it back to the cross. The second thing, though, is that we find that Jesus Christ laid down his life. It's another thing that we always we stress when we read through these narratives. It, it, Christ once said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down. I, I have to lay down my life. It's a voluntary death. It wasn't forced on him. Um, he chose to die. He, he decided to give his life, to sacrifice himself for us. You see that even in this narrative here, because um, we, we recall that when he stands before Pilate, he does nothing to excuse himself. Right in verse uh, 11 and 12, from verse 11 onwards, the Bible tells us that by the time Jesus Christ is finishing explaining himself, Pilate is amazed at how unwilling he is to excuse himself. It's almost as though Pilate is giving him all the options, all the choices to just say the right thing so that he can be set free. Pilate is making the case for him. All Jesus has to do is acknowledge the case that Pilate, Pilate makes for him. And if he, if he just says the right thing, this is a farce. This, this case will have to be thrown out. Not the case. Christ refuses to speak. He refuses to defend himself. The reason is because he was choosing to die. And for the Christian, the glory of the cross has always been this, that the Son of God, he chose to die for us. He laid down his life in accordance with the will of the Father. He wasn't forced. It wasn't simply that, uh, that, that God made him have to do it. No, it was the, the good pleasure of the Father and of the Son. It's this act of love in accordance with the will of the Father. And he tells us that if he freely laid down his life for us, we should never need to, we never need to worry that he will ever leave us. Uh, when, we, when, we, when we see that we, we are unworthy of, of him, and when we see the sin in our lives and how often we betray him or how often we let him down, and we're tempted to think that he might leave us or forsake us, we remember he, was never, he didn't have to die for us. He chose to. It was love, free love, that moved him to sacrifice himself for us. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. He refused to open his mouth. Because if he did open his mouth, it would have been words of judgment against us. Rather, he was quiet so that he would bear our judgment, so that he would take our accusation. And in his silence that led to his death, we received the very voice of God vindicating us, saying that because Christ has died for you and I, we are free. We are righteous. We are the children of God. Christ laid down his life for us. It's also a testament to his power. No one could take his life from him. How could we be sure that this Jesus dying was not just any other man? How could we be sure that his death had the power to cause the kind of things that Christians are claiming it causes? How could we be sure that his death had the power to make a new creation, to shake the very foundations of the earth, the way Christians are claiming? How can we be sure that his death has the power to make us right with God? It's because of the power he displays in yielding his life. No one can take his life from him. We are reminded the one who's dying for us is the eternal son of God. 
is the powerful Son of God. But for Christians, we also learn, don't we, that he, he humbled himself. He humbled himself to do that. He could, have, he, could have affirmed, he could have stressed his power. He could have taken the root of power and authority. He could have imposed himself. No, but he humbled himself. He laid down his life. He, 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 he took a loss. He sacrificed himself. And we learn that we must live that way as well. We have to live as those who humble ourselves and are willing to serve others, even when we could press our own rights, even when we could affirm our own rights, the right way to live, Having seen the cross now, the only way to live is for us to constantly attempt to yield power. It's the only way to live. A life of love that yields power, that doesn't claim its own rights, that serves others, that allows others to have their own way in many ways. That's the only way to live because we've seen the Son of God lay down his life. And, but this is what we preach. We say Christ laid his, down his life for you. This is love, vast as the ocean. Christ, he laid his life. He gave his life up for you. It wasn't an accident. It was, it was a conscious decision to die for you. How could you turn your back on such a demonstration of love? And if you, if you feel unloved, if you feel, if you feel the loneliness of your sinfulness, if you feel the loneliness of a broken, sinful world, the Jesus Christ who laid down his life for you voluntarily will love you to the very end. There's no love like this. Come and know the love of Jesus who laid down his life for us. The next thing to say, the third thing, is that we find that we have an innocent Jesus. Jesus Christ is innocent. And over, again, in the, over and over again in this narrative, it's very clear. This is a miscarriage of justice. He didn't deserve to die if you want. He was innocent. Uh, verse 18 and 19 have Pilate and his wife testifying to this. Pilate says, the Bible says in verse 18 that Pilate knew for a, for a certainty the only reason why they wanted to kill him was out of envy. It's not because he had done anything wrong. They were just envious of him. Pilate's wife herself is, has a dream, she says, and we have to believe that this again is a sovereign hand of God testifying to the innocence of his son, to the purity of his son. And she says... This, this, she, she warns her husband to have nothing to do with, with killing this man. He's a righteous man, is what she says. He's a righteous man. Don't do anything to him. He's, he's innocent. Have nothing to do with this righteous man. God allowed this part in the story so that Christians can be reminded that the Jesus who died for them was the sinless Jesus. That Jesus Christ was, as a writer to the Hebrew says, holy and unstained, separated from sinners. That Jesus Christ uh, was tempted but without sin. That Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills the Old Testament teaching of the sacrificial offerings where the lamb that was brought to God had to be one without blemish. So that the apostle Peter says Jesus Christ is, that we're washed, we're bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as a lamb without defect, a lamb without blemish, Jesus Christ was pure and innocent because that's the only way that he could atone for our sin. That's the only way that he could be the Messiah if he was perfect, if he was pure, if he was innocent. And so we can have confidence in him. We have confidence in him as one who can lead us to God. We can, we can have confidence in him um, 
as one whose sacrifice has been accepted because we know our, 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 our Savior was perfect and spotless. No man has ever been like him. And so in one sense, he initially, he, he proves the holiness of God. God is so holy that the only way to have fellowship with him is purity, perfection. Perfection is the only way to have true fellowship with God. Uh, it's the only way to do that. God is a holy God. And, and, and the only way to, be, to, to, to not be, have to face God's judgment is to approach him pure and perfect. Well, none of us are pure. None of us are perfect. But if we don't have fellowship with God, we don't have life. The Bible says in him we live, move, and have our being. If God is not, if we're not in fellowship with God, we don't actually have life. And so how are we going to get this life? How do we get into the life of God? We need we need to be made pure. We need to be made perfect. We need to be innocent, but none of us are. And so God sends his son to be our representative. God sends his son to be that spotless lamb of God. And for those of us who trust in him, for those of us who believe in him, the Bible says his blood is a pure, precious blood that washes away our sin. So Christians never have to worry that there's a sin that his blood cannot wash away. He offered perfect, spotless blood for us. The precious blood of Jesus Christ washes away our sin. To live under the cross of Jesus Christ is to live in a relationship where your, your relationship with God is one where, in a sense, you're innocent. You're righteous. So you never have to worry that God's not going to hear your prayers. You, you never have to worry that God is angry with you. You never have to worry that you're not God's child because even though you see in your life and the way you, the way you sometimes speak and the way you sometimes live, the decisions you sometimes make, you see that you are not perfect and so not worthy of fellowship with God. And so when you come to pray to God and you come to ask God for things and your mind says to you, but I'm, how can, I can't, I'm not perfect. How can I speak to a God who is perfect and holy? Why would I think that a God who is perfect and holy will care about me? When I know how sinful I am, we remember that we're cleansed by the perfect, innocent blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, when, when, we, when things start to go wrong in life for us and we think it's because God has forsaken us or God is angry with us and the reason why God has forsaken us is because we're sinners. God, God can't have anything to do with a sinner like me. We have to we remember that actually we might be sinners, but Jesus Christ was perfect. And God now looks at us as those who have been cleansed by the perfect blood of Jesus Christ. And so God sees us as perfect. God sees us as righteous. He hears us the same way he hears his righteous son. Because Jesus Christ was perfect before God. And he was perfect before God for us. And that leads us to the fourth thing. Fourth thing. And this is, uh, this is one of those things that stands at the very heart of how Christians understand the cross. That actually, the reason why all that Christ accomplished and all that he did as being a perfect son of God and all that he did uh, as, uh, as, as far as laying down his life, all these things, the reason why they have significance for Christians is because Jesus was our substitute. He took our place. All these things were happening in our place. And we see that especially in Matthew 27 in the story of Barabbas that I read earlier. And, and Barabbas was a, 
it's so it's interesting, right, that on the day when Jesus Christ is being crucified, Pilate is the day when when Pilate says there is this there's this ceremony usually of releasing one prisoner, releasing one criminal. We usually have this ceremony of releasing um, one criminal. Now, this this ceremony it might sound like a good thing, but actually it's not quite a good thing, is it? If you if if there's a ceremony where one you know one time in a year or so. Um, the the, 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 the the governor would allow a guilty man to set to be set free. That's actually injustice. So so a man who's deserving of punishment, you're setting him free. No matter how nice it sounds, it's actually it's it's just unjust. But it's not by coincidence that this happens to, to fall on the day when the innocent Jesus is there. And if anyone should be set free, right, it should be him. But surely the reason why the Lord allows this to happen, the reason why we see Barabbas set free as a as opposed to Jesus Christ is to teach us about the meaning of the cross. The cross is the place where a substitution happens, where the, um, the guilty are set free, but the innocent one is punished. Uh, the, the, the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ is the fact that this innocent and righteous son of, of God on the cross took the place of sinful men and women. And so when in verse 42 and 43, they say he saved others, but himself he could not save. They're speaking far more than they know. Right there, what they're doing is testifying to the glory of the cross. The glory of the cross is that Jesus Christ, because he chose to save you and I, refused to save himself. The glory of the cross is that at the cross, a substitution takes place. Our life for his. We receive his life. He receives our death. He takes on our corruption. He gives us his purity. The Bible said, he that knew no sin was made to be sin. We exchange, there's an exchange, if you want, of life. My life for his. This is the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ has taken my place. He's taking my place as a sinner. He's taking my place as a liar. He's taking my place as a, as a fornicator. He's taking my place as an angry person. He's taking my place as a bitter person. He's taken all of that. And what I deserve is God's judgment. And he has given me his sonship. The substitution is the glory of the cross. This substitution that happens. And when we, proclaim, when we preach the cross, we're inviting men and women, are we not? We're inviting them to come and share in this substitution. We're telling them, your, your life and everything you do in your life is not enough to make you right with God. The way you've lived your life so far, it doesn't matter how long you've lived. The, the, the way you've lived your life so far, you are an enemy of God. The way you've lived your life so far, you deserve to be judged by God. That's why we all head to the grave. The only way you can be saved from your sinfulness against the holy God is if there was some kind of substitution that could happen. Can there be a substitution? Can I substitute my life for someone else's? Is there a way that something can happen so that I no longer have to, be, to take account for, for the wickedness I've done so that God can look at me and say, your, 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 your rap sheet is wiped, is wiped clean. There's no more offenses. Is there a way that God can do that? Or oh, friends, in, in most areas in life, this never happens. 
most areas in life, when you say, is there a way I can, I can go back and, and, and change yesterday? Is there a way I can go back and, and redo that over? Well, usually when you get to that point in life and you really mess things up, there's never no, you know that that's just wishful thinking. In fact, it's, it's the most painful form of thinking. It's why people avoid regret, right? People say, I have no regrets, because really what they mean is, I know I can't change the past, and it hurts. I don't want to face that. There's only one place where that happens. That's why the Bible says Jesus Christ coming into the world to die for sinners is, and salvation is, is the work of, of, of the God who does the impossible. Um, it's, it's the God for whom nothing is too difficult. Nothing is too difficult. Can God somehow change the, 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 the failings of yesterday? Can he do that? Can he give me a different life? Can he substitute my life around? The cross of Jesus is where God says, yes, I can do the impossible. I can take your life and, and all the mess that it's been and, 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 and the, the destruction it deserves, I can take it and I can swap it around with the life of Jesus Christ. This is the miracle of being a Christian. It's the, it's the amazing in grace is that I'm no longer looked on by God as, 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 as just this sinful man that I am. I'm, I'm seen in Jesus Christ. Christ's life is now my own. Uh, but to do that, he had to go to the cross to give me his life, to give me his, 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 his credit, to give me all that he is. He had to go to the cross. He had to die on the cross. He had to bear the wrath of God. He had to be punished on the cross. And that's where it took place. At the cross, our lives were, were changed. And, 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 and if there's someone this morning that you need to, you, you realize you need to start over. You realize that when all is said and done, you, you need someone to be able to comb, as it were, comb through the past and change the story. Uh, you need someone who can make you righteous with God. You can't do it by yourself. You need a substitution. It's no good you trying to do it in this life that you're in, in this body that you're in. It's no, it's no good you trying to do it in your own strength, do it by yourself. You need someone who can do it all. If you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's alive. If you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, he gives you his life. He invites you to enjoy this substitution. And the moment you call on him and you believe in him, your life is not the same anymore. You're not the person that you used to be. You're a new person living the life of Jesus. And as much as he is risen and lives forever, no one can take away his life from us. Christ was our substitute. But the last thing is that Jesus is a king, right? That even though we see him on the cross, his body frail, his body broken, even though we see him weak, naked, exposed, just like a criminal, Anyone who beholds the old rugged cross, who sees that cross, when they see it, they, they, they see no worth there. This is the story of another criminal. This is just another criminal. In fact, some people speak about him that way. They curse and they mock him. But for those who are given eyes to see, they know that this is a king. The one who is being crucified, the one who has been whipped, the one who has been spat at, the one who's been pierced, the one whose hands have been nailed, he's, he's a king. He's a glorious king. 
This is just a way into his kingdom. The way into his kingdom is the offering up of himself. The way into his kingdom is sacrificing his life. Uh, he's a king. And so what that means is this is a demonstration of true power. Yes, <laughs> he looks weak. Yes, he's become weak. But if you knew what was going on there, you'd realize there was nothing weak about this here. This is a demonstration of true power. It's always been God's way, though. Always been God's way to bring people up by taking them down. Always been God's way to show power through weakness. We should have known this. But at the cross is what we're seeing. That's why Christians go back there and they worship. That's why they go there and they, you know what worship is, right? You, you, you pay obeisance, you bow. We don't have that in our, in our, in, in, in our world today, right? We don't have, well, at least not in, our, in the West here. We don't really have kings who command that sort of obeisance, who command that sort of obedience, who uh, uh, command uh, th that sort of, of, of surrender and submission. But Jesus is a king. And when Christians see him, when they behold him, even on the cross, they see the king of love. They realize this is power, power that changes us, power that will transform you, power that will save you. One of the things Jesus Christ is doing on that cross, he's overcoming. He's overcoming for us. You know, because of Christ's death now, Satan is not going to be able to blind some to the message of the gospel. Because of the death of Jesus Christ, Satan can no longer accuse, accuse some to the point where they feel like they can't walk with God. Because of Christ's death, he gives us the most powerful thing you can have in the world to be a child of God. The Bible says to those who believe, he gives them the authority, the right to be children of God. There's nothing more powerful than the place, than the stage, than the, the place where that was achieved. Where the, the place where, where Christ earned the right for sinners to be called children of God. Nothing is as powerful as that. And so what I'm saying to you is you, you come to the cross and see the king. He, he's a king and he can set you free. He's a king and he can give you true liberty. You go around boasting about the power you have. Maybe it's in your physical power or your wealth or your brain power. But none of those things have been able to set you free from your life of sin. None of those things have been able to give you peace with God. None of the things have been able to put you in, 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 in fellowship with God. As, as powerful as you appear to be, as much power as you appear to have amassed, you're still heading towards the grave. You still see your sin. You're still far from God. You still can't stop doing the evil that you used to do. And you still have no way to make up for the evil you've done. You still know that you have to stand before God and in and of your own self, you're guilty just like every other man. Where's the power in that? We're weak. We're frail. True power is at the cross of Jesus where he can set people free. True power is at the cross of Jesus where he can declare us forgiven. True power is at the cross of Jesus where he can say to us, you will not have to face the punishment you deserve for your sin. That's power. And not the punishment from a judge, a, a, a local judge or an earthly judge. Punishment from the God of the universe who searches every heart who knows what I did yesterday, who knows what you're going to do tomorrow, who sees the things that you think are hidden. 
He sees them. And he knows everything. We're exposed to him. He, he knows I'm guilty. But here's one who has the power to say, but because I died for you, because I gave my life for you, because I died to bear the sins of the world, you will be set free by this judge. You'll be declared innocent by this judge. And you'll be set free to live for God, to worship God, not to be controlled by these sinful desires anymore, not be to be controlled by Satan's deceptions. It's at the cross that we see that happening. The power to live a life to the glory of God. That is true power. And if some of you are being honest today, the reason why you can't call yourself a Christian, the reason why you don't worship Jesus this morning is because you've loved your sin too much. You've had too much of an appetite for sin. In fact, sometimes you did try and become a Christian because you realized the way you were living, it, wasn't that, it was not that good. It's not a good way to live this way. And so you thought, I'll try and behave myself better. I'll, I'll change some of these things. I'll change some of my, my habits. But not too long, a few phone calls from a few friends, few invites to here and there, a few evil thoughts possess the mind, and you're back in your sin again. And you can't do it. And why won't you confess that at the point of, sin, of your sin, you have seen just how weak you are. And you need someone who can give you true liberty. I'm telling you, Jesus can do that. The cross is the place where we're set free to live for God. The cross is the place where Christians say, all my sins were washed away. Yes, I'm a wretched man and I'm, I'm sinful and I have the same evil, sinful desires. But at the cross, I hear King Jesus say to me, I can purge you of those desires. I can cleanse you of those desires. I can cleanse your conscience and give you freedom to stand and live for God and give you power to say no to your sin. And one day he will clothe us perfectly in his righteousness. And when we stand before God and there will be no more to sin, the cross of Jesus Christ is the cross of the king being crucified. And let me close by saying to you this morning, he's calling you to come and behold this glory. I don't be like the woman I mentioned earlier on who, who just didn't know what she had there. Um, it's like those who were crucifying Jesus, right? They, they just didn't know who that was. Those who mocked him. Those who said, oh, is he really a king? They just didn't know who they were standing before. Right? The same way Jesus Christ said to, to one woman, if you, had knew the, if you had known the gift of God, if you had known who it was that was speaking to you, you'd have asked of him. And he would have given you eternal life. If you really could just hear the gospel this morning, if you really knew what was going on, if you'd, just be, if you'd humble yourself and pay attention to what is being said, you would realize that these are the words of eternal life. Don't pass on eternal life for the pleasures of sin for a season. Don't pass on the offer of eternal life uh, to live a few good days in this temporal world. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ, uh, is the place where we meet with true life, is the place where we meet with King Jesus, is the place where we meet with the living God. The glory of the cross uh, is that this innocent, pure, undefiled Son of God has laid down his life to save you and I. Um, for the glory of God, he laid down his life to save, he laid down his life to to, to save us, to be in our place so that God can be glorified. And what that means for you and I, brothers and sisters, is if we believe in the cross, if we trust in the cross of Jesus Christ, we are brought 
into fellowship with God, we are made right with God. And once you have that, nothing else, is, is, nothing else matters. That's why Paul says, I, I, I don't want to know anything compared to knowing that Christ died. Paul says, everything I've ever known in my life is, is nonsense to me compared to the knowledge of Christ's cross and what it means. Can you say the same thing? Is, do you think everything is rubbish compared to learning about Jesus Christ? Do you think knowing that Christ died is more valuable than all the wealth this world could give? If you truly see the glory of the cross this morning, if you just see it, it's greatness, if you see what's happening there, then I guarantee you that your one song will always be, my Lord, my God was crucified. Amen.